Hey man, it's Phil X, and you're watching Guitar Tales with Dave Cohen and Guitar Tales, Guitar Tales. Like, what else do you need, right? Guitar. We're geeks, nerds, gear, inspirations, positive vibes. Look out. Geeks and nerds, if there's any area where I have street credibility, it is that. Thank you, Phil X. I am a geek and I am a nerd. And I have to say, when we were uh, playing our intro there, I was very proud uh, to see in our virtual green room our great guest tonight, Joe Normal, actually kind of vibing a little bit to the uh, John Doe and Generics tape from 1987. Uh, so thank you, Scott Guitar, Mr. Stengel, for putting all of that great stuff together, uh, the intro, the eventual outro, getting us hooked up with a great guest, Joe Normal. We're going to learn all about him. And I would like to thank, as I always do every week, our sponsor, Mischief Studios, headed by the great Charles Lorita, who is a guest of ours in Season 1 here on Guitar Tales. Great music, great equipment, lessons, everything you need. Check out Mischief Studios. And without further ado, and with a second thanks to Scott for setting us up with him, um, New Jersey legend, Joe Normal, who is a fabulous musician, who has stories to tell about um, backstage at Van Halen, who has an album coming out, who is kind enough to be coming from the West Coast to chat with us. Joe Normal, thank you for joining us tonight. Hey, what's up, Dave? Thanks for having me. Uh, we are really happy to have you. And, and am I right? Were you really vibing uh, to our intro music? Yeah, I definitely was. I, I looked into a little bit like, what is that song, you know? And it, it's like somebody's demo, right? Yeah, that was that, that was penned by me. Oh, look at Scotty's laughing. <laughs> that song was penned by uh, me, although our season two guest, Todd Yasui, claims to have co-written it with me. And yeah. um, on bass, here, here's a little trivia for you. Leonard Bernstein's nephew, Mike Bernstein, was our bass player. Oh, wow. So he's playing bass on it. It's just a little clip from that song that we recorded all the way back in 1987. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, like most of our bands, you know, we're just jamming and just kind of rocking out and, you know, just want to grab the mic. You know? Well, that, so far you gave me a proud guitar tales moment. <laughs> so I appreciate it. So, so you were, you were joining us from the West Coast. You're in L.A. somewhere um, yeah. in a coolest town of L.A. Yeah, I'm and, in L.A. Yeah. And are you doing anything fun out there? Uh, just, you know, surviving, just working it, you know recording, playing, just doing my thing. Oh, that is great. I, I, I mentioned recently, I was just out there um, a few months ago, and I just love that town, you know? You know, LA, it's, it's got a lot going on, you know? It, like, the music business has changed over the years, you know? Right. It's kind of like, you know, we came out here when it was just, like, totally kicking ass, like, back in the 80s. Okay, you know, I've yeah. Kind of built a life here, and I'm settled here. Uh, but, uh, like you guys have Asbury and that's where it's happening, man. You know, <laughs> it, it really is. I'm embarrassed to say that I probably had a 25, 30 year absence from having gone to the stone pony 
And I've been there a couple of times recently to see uh, Liz Roberts of um, Girl Bossa Nova out there. And then we saw the great Matt O'Ree and his band. But literally 25, 30 years I hadn't been there. And I forgot how amazing um, the Stone Pony is. And Scott plays there all the time. You know, but it's legendary. Yeah, totally is. Yeah. Uh, House of Independence, you know, uh, over at the Paramount Theater over there and stuff. And, you know, they do the light of day stuff there each year. I've been out there for that a couple of times. And, you know, what always amazes me, and I forget this, is the level of musicianship is just the tops. It's insane. Then, it is know? insane. So, yeah. so you, you just gave me a great question. You know, I've, sure. I've, sp I've spent a fair amount of time in L.A. You know, that same guy who co-wrote the song with me lives out there. And so I have a little bit of a feel for L.A. culture. Not a lot, but a little bit. So as you're sitting there in L.A. right now, do you sure. feel this level of longing and nostalgia for the authenticity that is Asbury Park? Uh, yeah, definitely. You know, I think like L.A., is a film town, you know, it's very yeah. image conscious, you know? Right. So right. like LA, like when it comes to like music, everybody's thinking about their look first and their image and their, yeah. you know, they, they use the word brand now, but it's just, yeah, you got to brand image, yourself. Right. You know, but yeah. like, it, it seems like back East, like it starts with the music and then you develop the rest of that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, that, I think that's what I miss is just, you know, finding people who look cool, but can play really great too. And, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's not as common in LA, you know, you got a lot yeah. of great bands here. Right. But, uh, you know, there, there is, I think everyone I've met in LA and a fair amount of folks I've met there who are transplanted from the East coast, they're all happy, there, but they miss, yeah. they miss our grittiness uh, right. they, they miss our down-to-earthiness, which is not right. really a, a phrase, but there, there's something about it. And I'm saying all this hot off of, um, I just listened to the uh, whole Bruce um, autobiography on tape. Yeah. And it really, you know, I grew up in Matawan, so I'm a Monmouth County boy originally. And But, you know, that really brought me back to back then what Asbury was. You know, he's still 15 years older than I am or so, but... Um, yeah. But even, you know, the later years, it, it's still, you, you know, you go to Asbury right now, even the culinary scene is artistic. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't know. I was always eating backstage food, so I wouldn't know. Oh, that's right. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, if you're talking pizza, that's a whole other story. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I've, just, I've had this discussion with my kids, you know, like they, they're my kids travel all over the place. There is no better pizza than uh, Jersey anywhere. Yeah, as far as, you know. uh, that's true. Yeah. And and bagels. I don't know. If, I haven't had a Jersey bagel in a long time, but like I grew up in Elizabeth and we used to have on Elmore Avenue, there was a Snoopy bagel shop, the best right. bagels in the world, you yep. know, and then like any pizza place that you walk into there has the best pizza. Anyway. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I don't care what they say on Barstool with the whole Hartford, Connecticut, a pizza. No, no. <laughs> Jersey blows away Connecticut with their pizza. Yeah. So, yeah. Dave, Dave Portnoy, that's what I'm thinking of. You know, I yeah. actually watched that whole pizza thing, and no, Jersey beats them. Uh, so you grew up in Elizabeth. Yeah, I'm from Elizabeth. Uh, you know, uh, my youngest years were in Bayway, and then uh, before I turned a teenager, we moved to Elmora. Where's and that? Elmora is like, um, like if you're on – 
I, I don't know how to describe it. It's like kind of in the center of Elizabeth. Towards, oh, okay. Like, like between like North End and I don't know, Bay Way. <laughs> right. I got you. I got it you. Was like, it was like a step up from Bay Way. <laughs> there you go. You know, and then it's a step down into North End and then you're in Newark, you know? <laughs> right, right. And, and uh, people from outside of Jersey don't even know that Newark Airport is in Elizabeth, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's, Everyone uh, thinks reporters, it's Newark. Yeah, it's yeah. Newark, you know, Budweiser Factory, yeah. you know, Roots 1 and 9. Yeah. yeah. You got you got all that stuff up there. Now, did you ever live in Asbury or was that just where um, you sort of participated? No, you know, like my first like real like exposure to Asbury was when I was going back there playing with Dramarama. If you guys are familiar with the band Dramarama, another Jersey band, uh, I was helping out uh, quite a few shows filling in for Marky or for Pete on guitar. And we would do shows. We'd go back there and play uh, several dates. And the big thing that we would do was the Light of Day concerts. And I was, I couldn't believe it. It was like, it was like the Sunset Strip was in the '80s, where it's like people are there for the music, they're there for the scene, right. for the nightlife, and you know, also they're there to support the cause and 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 that. But it felt like people were genuinely there for the music and to support the acts and the artists. And I don't know, I haven't seen that since like the late 80s, early 90s in L.A. And then to go back there uh, to Asbury, which I, I don't know, I just thought of it as a beach town. Right? I knew yeah. the history of Springsteen and, and that whole thing. But like being from Elizabeth, like that was a million miles away from the scene that, where we were. Like we were more attached to like New York City. Oh yeah, yeah, right. And CBGBs and, and all that. Yeah, yeah. Gildersleeves, CBGBs, the Bowery, you know, all those things, St. Mark's Place. And like Asbury to me was like like we didn't go that direction. We we went mostly north, you know. Yeah. And uh, or across the water. Uh, so for me, going there with Drama Rama was my first real exposure to it. I thought, man, this is great. It's like, you know, we gotta come here and try and be a part of this. And like I was saying, like I consider myself sort of bi-coastal and yeah. I try to get there when I can. And I realize that, you know, Hey, I'm from here and people here appreciate the kind of stories that I tell and the music that we make. And, you know, so I've kind of like put some effort into kind of bringing some of that more into my, uh, my style. Yeah, Cause I, like I was saying, like being in LA, people think, Oh, he's an LA guy, you know, 80s glam rock or something but you know i, I started <laughs> i started back there <laughs> yeah well it's, it's interesting when we start unpacking which i guess we could do right now um you know i i, I watched and greatly enjoyed um small town factory your video thank you and and, and here's here's what i think was really cool because you're you are tough to categorize you know as an artist in a good way you're tough to categorize and you know one of the things I love the song, uh, the 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 verbal imagery was great. Um, oh. It was catchy, and then one of the things that I picked up on that you did with the video, you made the the factory a character in your in your video, not just your song. Yeah. And I thought the way that the way that worked, and you know we'll put a link at some point in post so people can find your video, but it was really beautifully done and. and you know, I love the way, you know, you told your story, not just through the music, not just through your, your lyrics, but through showing us, you know, that, that character, that factory. And I thought that there was a gutturalness about it 
that did immediately make me think of, of Springsteen in his younger years, but not precisely. It's Joe Normal. You know, it's right. not, you know, it was very yeah. cool. I appreciate what you have to say about the video. You know, like uh, my dad worked in the factory, you know, a lot of our dads worked in the factories. Our parents did. And uh, for us growing up, wanting to be musicians uh, and me personally seeing my father, who was like a trained tenor singer, he was oh, just wow. an amazing singer that he had to sacrifice all that to work to support his family. So to us, the factory was like this place that we dreaded. It was like the final destination for our lives if we don't succeed in this right. thing that we want to do, you know? So to me, the, the factory was this overwhelming presence, you know, this, this hung over our town. You know, in Elizabeth, we have the Singer Factory, which has been there for like 150 years. And it looks like a Willy Wonka factory it or does. something. You know? It it's does, like, yeah. So like to me, it has a lot of personality. It has a presence and a sort of character to it and yeah. all the lives you think about all the people over the years that walked in and out of there and their yeah. stories and their sweat that is just like in the bricks there yeah. like That's where does exactly that go right. it's kind of haunting you know and yeah so like when i think of the factory like that's how i sort of see it i wanted to sort of encapsulate a little bit of that in the video. i think I you, I, people... you did you did yeah. that's i thought it was really special and i and I, and I think, and I guess now I'm confirming, I understood, I thought in the moment that I understood what you were trying to, to convey. And yeah. you did. I mean, and and, it came across. And, thank you. And you know, at the same time, there's this beauty there because without that factory, we wouldn't be here. You know, that's, that was the livelihood that it was given to our parents. And, you know, so yeah. we're grateful for this thing, but it's like, you know, it's there. Well, there's then, pain, right? You know, the, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a pain associated. Yeah, exactly. You know, right. and we, like we grew up in the shadow of that factory. And then like my father, who got laid off in his mid 50s, was an unskilled worker. What's he going to do with the rest of his life? You know, he couldn't, uh, he never, he, he never recovered from that. And wow. so, uh, you know, in Elizabeth, we have uh, Wilson Jones, which was where he worked in the big factory there over like borderline Linden. Okay. And then there's the refinery. And uh, I think the Siemens mattress company was over there in Elizabeth. There's quite a few buildings and quite a few places where our parents were. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, you know, when we watch the Sopranos, you know, you have the turnpike cutting right through Elizabeth. Right. In the yeah. intro to that show. Yeah. 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 I've, I've seen that many, many times coming over the Gothel's bridge. Yep. From, yep. Uh, Staten Island, you know, and I, I'm always amazed by the sign, and I tell this to everybody, New Jersey welcomes safe drivers. <laughs> so in L.A., where people cannot drive to save their lives, it's like, no, they cannot. you know, I'm that guy who's all calm behind the wheel and while everybody's like all road rage and shit. <laughs> oh, it is. Yeah, L.A., oh, my God, the, the 101 everything yeah yeah, yeah. It, it's it is rough out there yeah it's like you know eight lanes wide and everybody's trying to change lanes at the same time it's just oh they're so angry it's just chaos man and yeah. i've done it you know you get on on one side but you know in about 20 feet you have to get to the other side and no one will yeah. let you through yeah. it, it is stressful driving out there i do not like driving out there you know, it took me a, a long time to realize why like when we first came to la was i always getting lost every time we got on the freeway like you know, the 101, like, I don't know if people know this, but like odd number freeways run north and south and even number freeways run east and west. 
But when you get to LA, the 101 will say 101 West, 101 East. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? And I would constantly get lost because I realized that the 101 is heading north and then it turns and then it goes back up. So that little part there, like in the San Fernando Valley, North Hollywood, (laughs) I would always get lost there and I could never figure it out. And then I was like, oh, I had to look at a map to see it. This is before I GPS. I know. I know. <laughs> oh, I've gotten lost there too before GPS and all the canyon roads out there. Yeah. I was, I was there in the uh, Mal- one of the Malibu fires and got trapped out there for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. The fires. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty rough. Oh, look at it. Scott wants to get us a drink. All right. I'm going to use this as an opportunity. If you get us a drink, get a mug. Here we go. There's, whoop, I stick at this. There we go. A noise network mug. I'm doing. We have a merch store, so people can buy from Noise Network. So, all right, let, let's go back in time a little bit, if we could. Sure. So let. So I. I lo- first of all, I love your purple guitar, but I want to go from before that. Um, how old were you when you first picked up a guitar, and what led to it? Um, you know, my first instrument was piano, and then drums, and then guitar. Guitar. Okay. I was self-taught on guitar. I had a little bit of piano lessons growing up, and then. Like junior high school, I played the drums in the school band. I played timpani. You know, I, okay. I auditioned as a piano player, but I wasn't good enough. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, our teacher, his name was Mr. Berger. He was the best, you know, and he he like worked the shit out of us. And his big thing was the drum section. So he saw that I had rhythm. He's like, you know what? We need a timpani player, Joe. I'm going to have you come in and then, you know, we'll work you up on the piano. And I ended up playing like bells or xylophone and stuff eventually. But. Uh, those are my first instruments, you know, but like I was a Beatles fan growing up in the 70s, you know, Paul McCartney was huge. And, yeah. you know, I, I already was familiar with the Beatles and stuff. And um, there was a picture uh, probably like around 1964, or 65 Beatles. And I liked John Lennon, you know, when I picked up Lefty on the guitar and I saw John Lennon and I was like, no, he's holding it the other way. So I switched. That's but amazing. Like, that is amazing, by the way. You know, I, I could have stayed lefty, you know, and like yeah. Bernie, but uh, yeah, just like Lennon was kind of my first maybe guitar. I, I don't know if I would call him a hero necessarily, but the first like maybe person I was aware of that was like the guitar player in the band and um, kind of the way that that worked for me was uh, when I knew that I wanted to play guitar, I started drawing pictures of it, you know, and I would hang them on my wall and I had this wall full of all these guitars that I drew and uh, my grandfather called one day and he was on the background strumming some guitar that he got, you know, one of our cousins, grandfather. Parents, my grandfather, uh, and he didn't know how to play. He was like singing some drunken Irish tune or something. Okay. And I was like, oh my God, Pops has got a guitar. We got to go over to grandma's, you know, we got to go see this guitar. And then he died like a week later. And I remember uh, just begging my grandmother, grandma, you can we have that guitar it would really help us to grieve, you know, kind of sprinkling it a little bit with sadness, you know, <laughs> but like, I really wanted that guitar, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, my grandfather's name was Joseph. So he was kind of my namesake and okay. you know, they were really, they were always supportive of the music. And I can remember playing piano at the house and my mom would have us play on the 4th of July. That was his birthday. And she would open the windows of the house while we would play piano. So my grandfather could hear us because he loved musicians. He was oh, a bartender. That's beautiful. Okay. Uh, he he worked at the Schuler's Tavern on Bayway Avenue in Elizabeth his whole life. Uh, before that was Keating's Grill in Linden, uh, but that was his life: was being there, supporting the musicians that would play, and 
the patrons there. He was kind of like what they would call like the poor man's psychiatrist. You know? I love that. Um, that's a beautiful memory <laughs> for you, I would think. Yeah. Think so about my, him. Yeah. My grandfather, my namesake, Joseph, his guitar went to me. He spent his life working in a bar. And so did I, but from the other side of the counter. Yeah, that's know? right. And that's like a, when I, yeah. I made that connection a few years ago, and I thought, man, this is like such a beautiful story. I got to start writing this into my songs and kind yeah. of imparting that into the music. So that's kind of where guitar started for me. That was around uh, when I was in junior high school. Uh, I had a. I was going to put another guitar out for you guys to see. It's an old Univox. Ooh. My, friend, my friend Paul, who I grew up with in Elizabeth. We walked like five miles to Rondo Music out in Union on Route 22 one year when we were like ninth graders and he put his money in his shoe and he bought this guitar and we used to learn songs on it. He gave it to me a few years ago as a gift and I cherish that guitar. I played it on a few of my songs on the record and stuff too. Um, wow. that, that but, is, that, that's a great, I'm going to stop you there. That is a beautiful story. It, it, you know, and here you are, you know, a little later in life and that, that guitar that took you guys on a five mile walk with cash and a shoe. Yeah. And then, and then it ends up on an album. Yeah. You know, it's sort of, That's, uh, yeah, it's, it's like the only sort of link that I have to those early days, you know, yeah. um, as we got older and we're really pursuing the band thing harder, like in the eighties, uh, we sold everything to go to London with the band, you know? So I, I didn't, I didn't take anything. I had to take like two pairs of underwear and a pair of socks oh, and wow. a guitar, you know, and yeah. we got one way plane tickets. Well, we can get into that, but like, um, I don't have any of my, like my first guitar or any of that shit. So when Paul gave me his old Univox, it was like, yeah, here's like, I can hold on to this and kind of be transported back to that time. And remember how bad we wanted this and how hard yeah. we practiced all those records. Like, there was no YouTube. I mean, you were picking up the needle or rewinding the cassette to yep. learn your solos and the guitar intros and, and all that shit. And, you know, we worked harder to learn back then. And I yeah, think it, like, it was harder. I, I think that's like part of how you develop your style because like this, you get to a certain point where you can't figure it out. So you got to make it up. And right. uh, I think about all like the guitar heroes coming up in those days um, you know, they're all different because they all learn differently. And now like you just go on YouTube and, you know, most likely you're going to probably see the same five guys teaching you and everybody's learning the same thing from the same guy. And it's kind of, you lose a little bit of the individuality, I think. Yeah. It's you funny. Know? We've had this show for four years now, probably 60 shows under our belt. That yeah. inside of yours is the first time that's come up. And I think it's really interesting you know, I, I even, you know, I, I, I advertise that I'm crappy on guitar. You know, I'm, I'm a mediocre guitar player. If you're being generous, I'm a little below that. But Well, you got somebody like Phil X open in your show. I mean, everybody's mediocre. You know? yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty damn amazing. Uh, but, but I think if I want to learn a song, I can, it's, it's so easily accessible that I can actually pick someone who has the easiest way to play that song that I want to learn but you're making me remember back in the day what you said. You'd have a cassette, right. you'd yeah. listen. There's no video. You're not looking at anything. And I'm one of the legions of garage band guys who couldn't read music, so that didn't help. And yeah. and then you sort of figure out a way to play it 
that it, you know, for me, it was within my skill set. But for someone who's a little more advanced or a lot more advanced like you, you're figuring it out in a way that's consistent with your playing style and personality. And, and I think yeah. you're right that, you know, I think almost everyone agrees the best songwriting we've heard came from the 70s. But I bet, you know, when you talk about the 70s and the 80s for playing, you know, before we had the advent of YouTube, I think it forced people to develop. You're right. It forced people to develop a style more consistent with who they were as musicians. Yeah. You know, like I would always figure out like the first, you know, the intro to the solo, you know, and it would get to a point where I would lose my patience trying to figure yeah. it out. So I'd yeah. fill in the rest with my own shit, you know, and then yeah. I would, I would end it the way the solo ended, you know, you get like a song like Stairway to Heaven, you know, da, 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 you know, and yeah. then the rest is Joe and then da, 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 at the end, you know, that's right. But that's, that's all I could do. I, I just, I don't know. I, I couldn't like get it from my ear to figuring out how to put it in my fingers, you know? Um, so you would make it up, you know, you had to envision it in some way that it would make sense to a listener, to yourself, the listener, you know, and then to other listeners. Right. And by making yourself happy, you'll then be able to musically emote to make your audience happy. Yeah. You know, and, and, and what I like about that, I'm just loving this because, you know, we, we've talked about everything and this has never come up is that you're learned to use the stairway to heaven example. And, and every guitar player learns it at varying levels of uh, professional, not professionalism, of, of uh, ability. Um, yeah. But, you know, then because we have to fill in the blanks, all that we're really doing is, is Jimmy Page is helping teach us about song structure and playing so that we can then each develop on our own. Whereas today, I mean, I can't even imagine if you were to, you know, pull out your iPhone right now, open the YouTube app and say how to play Stairway to Heaven. I bet there's a thousand or more. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're not, it would be an interesting number to look at how many, you know, either tens or hundreds or thousands of people out there would be teaching us how to play it. So that, that that's pretty cool. And I don't know if there's a fix to this. Because, I mean, God knows, even we are attached to our um, computers and uh, smartphones yeah. and all that. But for, for the for the people coming up, it's like that on steroids. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's it's like a crutch, you know. And yeah. Like I, I have a couple theories about it. I call it revenge of the nerds, you know. Like guitar, you know, rock and roll is from the waist down, you know. And for right. years, for years, like, you know, it was a, I don't know, uh like a ballsy dominated music yeah. and then the eighties come and all this tech starts to come in. And then right. suddenly it's like computers and like now the nerds are winning, you know, and it's like the gone is all the balls and everything is tech now. And it's like, you're right. edits on the computer. And it's like, I, I can make this joke. I call it revenge of the nerds. Cause it's like the, that's a good the, point, though. The, the balls have been like sucked out of rock and roll, and it's all done on a screen now. And it's like all the tech guys won. You guys won. <laughs> You're right. You know, we, you know? We, we we have something on our website, and Scott <laughs> chimed in on it. So we had um, a really cool show, and I think season two or three, we had a panel discussion, and we had uh, a great guy Mooch uh, from Big Bang Baby on, and he told us a story. A bar one night, a room down in Lang City. This is a true story. This is where I, I've had it. I've had, had it. I was at the end of my rope with music. 
There was an eight-piece band on stage. Right. There was a keyboard player with two stacks of keyboards. There was two guitar players. There was two female singers. There was, of course, bass, drums, uh, even a sax player. And I'm listening. They take a break, and I walk over to the keyboard player, and I say, excuse me, are you running samples? He goes, yeah, we are. I'm like, why are you here? <laughs> right. And he goes, I don't understand what you mean. I'm like, I know. That's why I'm asking you. I says, why are you running samples? You have a full AP span here. He goes, well, it makes it full. I'm like, huh, all right, well, listen, have a great night. Here's a dollar. I put a single on his keyboard. I went, I'm very sorry. So Yeah, there's, there's yeah. enough people there to cover it, you know. I know. I, you know, it's funny. Like, I, I've seen something recently. I was out at a club, and, like, I'm in a position now where I've been without a band for a while, and I want to okay. put something new together. So I, I've been going out to kind of get inspired, see other people. Sometimes you see other people, and it, and it pushes you to, yeah, right. I got this, you know. But yeah. I saw these young kids, and the guy, it was just two guys on stage, and they had a laptop, and they had, like, tracks. And, like, the first response, I had that kind of response you're saying, where it was like, you know, what? they were using a computer on stage. Like, I would never do that, you know. But at the same time, like, something clicked inside of me. I said, you know, they, they want to play bad enough yeah. that they would do that. And it kind of humbled me for a second. I thought, you know, I'm a guy who doesn't have a band right now. And I want to be on that stage. And here are these guys that want it so bad that they're willing to go up there without their drummer and keyboard player and have it on tracks so they could at least sound close to what they think they sound like, you know? Right. So it was sort of like, you, I, could, I could have looked at it both ways there. And I did for a second, but it, I sort of like, I decided I wasn't going to like, you know, be judgmental in that moment because I'm a guy who doesn't have a band at the moment and I want one. Right. I've been playing I've been playing with some other guys, but you know, that's, that's kind of interesting. That's a guy. healthy inner dialogue. I like that because, you know, it, it's not even just music, like in life every so often, you know, you'll encounter someone and, and maybe your gut instinct is, what are you doing? Like, why would you do that? And then what you did is, you know, you sort of, you know, it could be professional. It could be, you know, why are you, why are you in that relationship? It could be a million different things. And you yeah. took it to a better level. You took it to a healthier level. And you said, you know, here's a couple of guys who love music, who want to perform music in front of people. And for whatever is going on in their life, you know, they don't they don't have a drummer and a bass player or whatever, you know, was missing yeah, in their yeah. band. And, and they're making, you know, a little bit of a compromise. Maybe they're maybe they're less happy with the track than you were. You know, maybe right, they yeah. go home and they question themselves later that night. What the hell am I doing? Did I ever think that I'd be you know, that my, my bandmate would be, you know, an Apple iMac or, you know, <laughs> or Mac Air. I've got to get the it's word revenge wrong, of the nerds, I'm telling yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, I know. Now, do you, do you have views about, like, tube versus uh, modeling amps and things like that? You know, like, um, my main amp, like, when I play on stage, like, real stage with the band kind of thing, I have, like, Fender... I like Fender amps. I have this Blues Deluxe reissue. It's just a 112, and I run two of them in stereo. That's right. like my big – that's when I'm going for, like, Joe the guitar player kind of sound, you know? Right. Um, but, like, when I'm recording, I don't use that. I got this crummy little uh, – it's an acoustic 110-inch digital amp. Like, it's not a tube amp. What do you call it? A solid-state amp? Yep, but it yep. sounds fucking great in a room, you know? The key is don't mic it close. You okay. Know, like what I'll do is I'll, I'll you know, play the part that I want to record and I'll move my ear around the room and wherever it sounds good, I'll place the microphone right there. Interesting. And, 
you know, I could be three feet away. I could be, you know, eight feet away or whatever. And, you know, that's the sound that I want for the song. That's what I do. And I don't know. I, I, I'm not like a Marshall Plexi guy. I'm not like, you know, an AC30 guy. I, I just, you know, there's a point like, I want to say like towards the late 80s where I realized I could, there was like a road I was on. I was like, I could either like work really hard to be a fucking amazing guitar player or I could start working on songwriting and be a songwriter. And right. I thought about that. I was like, you know, there's going to be more, uh, there, there's going to be more guitar players that I'll be in competition than there will be good songwriters. Absolutely. So I thought, I'm going to do, you know, I, I've got a way that I look at the world. I, I, I'm a storyteller. I was already writing. I, I, I'm a writer. I write poetry. I write short stories. I already have that. So when I bring that to like lyrics, you know, I understand rhyme and meter and, and, and that type of thing and storytelling. So it was like, I'm going to put the love on the songwriting. So yeah. towards like, like the big band that I was in at the time, we were called the zeros and we were the, like the purple thing. I still have the purple in my life, but um, Sammy, our singer, he was the main songwriter in the band. And a lot of what we did was his stuff. So the songs that we contributed or co-wrote never got recorded. So around 92, when we left that band, it was like, all right, now I can really focus on being, being the songwriter. My brother and I, we were in that band together. So Jimmy and I really like put all our cash in the songwriting bank. And now like, you know, I go out with an acoustic guitar and, and sing my songs. You know, I, I can also, back myself up in a recording setting and play screaming solos or when I play with the band. Um, you know, I admire Bruce Springsteen, who, you know, everybody in New Jersey does. For years, I did not until I understood him. I didn't understand Springsteen until I got satellite radio and I started listening to the Bruce channel. I'm like, yeah. oh, my God, I missed out on this. You know, Me too. I, remember, I remember like. In high school, my friend Leo was way into Springsteen and the River album and before that. And I, I didn't get it. You know, Candy's Room. I liked Candy's Room. There was something about it that reminded me of like Lou Reed. It reminded me yeah. of uh, like a blistering Mick Ronson kind of solo in it because uh, I was into Bowie. And, uh, but it wasn't until the satellite radio thing about, I don't know, was it six or seven years ago that I really started to understand Springsteen? I, I jumped very late in that bandwagon too. I I grew up two towns over from him, and all yeah. through high school I couldn't stand. I I disliked him, and yeah, I was yeah. wrong. You know, at least were you were you into British rock? Yes, that was the whole thing. Well, you yeah. gave me the best segue. Um, two things because as I was uh, running some errands and I had my adult daughter in the car with me, we were on uh, one of your pages. My daughter Hadley is brilliant and a great writer and she said this guy is smart he's a great writer so i just wow. wanted to share that with you oh um, thank you hadley thank you <laughs> and one of the things that um that as she was reading out loud she said quadrophenia and oh, yeah. Yeah. we share that that is my favorite album on the planet i yeah I, great you movie know. great yep. story uh, did you ever see the billy idol when he plays the bellboy in the live show yeah, That's the best yeah. man. It's just a good. Yeah. I get chills thinking about it because he was such a so arrogant, you know. And then Roger yeah. Dutra kicks him in the ass when he's walking off stage, you know. It was, yeah. it was the best, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Quadrophenia, incredible movie, incredible. Uh, the whole yeah. album. It, it's uh, it, there's not a weak song on it. In tenth grade, um, 
we had to read a poem to our class uh, uh, for, uh, oh, what was our teacher's? I forgot my teacher's name, Polanowski. And um, I read I Am the Sea and pretended oh, it was good. a poem. I, I wasn't allowed to tell it was a rock tune. So oh. I just read I Am the Sea. I, or, or, or is it the beach? the beach? The beach is a place where a man can feel he's the only soul, only in, the soul world in the that's world real. that's real. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every, yeah. every time I walk on a beach, I hear those lyrics. So yeah, I play that song. I'll do that song in my, my live set when I play. Oh, that really? Song. Yeah. When uh, the last time I was in England uh, in 2018, we were staying, we were out in the countryside. I was out there with Dramarama again. Okay. And there was, a, there was this older guy who was an old mod. He comes rolling up on a scooter. A real mod. Like, you met a real mod? A real mod. And he was like in his like seventies, you know, and uh, got to chatting with him and yeah, he had prostate cancer and he was out on the road with his scooter spreading the word about, you know, prostate cancer and men and that there's support. And um, I guess uh, he was at some concert and uh, who's the drummer for who that replaced uh, Kenny Jones, uh, Kenny Jones. Yeah. Kenny yeah. Jones uh, was big in the British uh, community for prostate cancer. And oh, I didn't was know some that. Festival. Yeah. There was some mob thing that he, that he was there at four. Uh, and uh, I got to talk to this guy and I just, uh, I just have such love for that whole mod thing. And yeah. I, I relate so much to British culture. I was there in the eighties. We lived there for about six or eight months. Oh, wow. And um, I just really connect with that. I mean, my roots are English and Irish anyway. So it's like, you know, there's a genetic thing that you tap into. Yeah, you'll have a connection to that. It, yeah. And that, that album, the movie, it, it, it just, it really, it, it painted such an interesting picture of the mods versus the rockers. Yeah. Know? And remember how uh, how brilliant Sting was in that role? He was the king of the mods. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's perfect for that role. Oh, my God. He still is. I mean, yeah. he, he's a living mod, uh, no yeah. doubt. Well, well, you've given me a whole bunch of great segues, and, and you just gave me one right now. So let's hear the story about what brought you uh, to end up um, on the other side of the pond, as they say. Um, you know, the band I was in in the 80s in New Jersey was called Double O Zeros. And, um, you know, based out of Elizabeth, we were playing all the clubs there, the Dirt Club, Hitsville, the Showplace. There's all these like Jersey clubs and then New York CDs and Gildersleeves and stuff. And uh, we kind of got to the top of our scene because we wrote a song and recorded for Howard Stern when Howard was still on AM radio. He was on NBC. WNBC. WNBC. <laughs> and Sammy had the song that he wrote and we recorded for Howard. And Howard started playing it every day. He'd open a show with it every single day. And we kind of started to get known for that. And I, I don't know what happened. I guess we were hoping Howard would bring us onto some of his live gigs that he would do. Like he, he would do these yeah. like theater shows. And, and I guess birthdays and things like that. Yeah. And he wasn't really interested in helping us out. And it was uh. like we started to get known as the Howard Stern band. But we were more like... Like uh, like a glam rock band, kind of that leaned into a little bit of Alice Cooper theatrical gotcha. kind of thing, but we had a real like romper room, funny kind of childlike thing too. Okay. Um. So it was very colorful and just quirky and funny and vulgar at the same time. And that's uh, perfect for Howard. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I guess around '84. We got offered a demo deal with Atlantic Records. Jason Flom, who was like, became like the hugest thing in the world in the record business, uh, we did a demo deal for him. It didn't pan out. We didn't get signed, so we released it on our own. 
And I don't know, we just felt like we got as far as we could in the New Jersey scene. And we admired like Twisted Sister and we admired the Stray Cats who we both heard had went to London to kind of get their success. And we thought, you know, we're going to do the same thing. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Bright idea. We're going to England, you know. So we basically took everything down to English town and we sold everything that we had. English town auction. Yeah. (laughs) I know it well. I know it very well. Yeah. And uh, we got one-way tickets to England and we got there. And like within a month, we we had our first gig. And, you know, within two months, months, we were like headlining. We were playing the marquee in London, Wardour Street. And we just kind of immersed ourselves in the London scene and, uh, over there, glam rock had kind of peaked already, like okay. with ha- Hanoi Rocks, um, Poison, which was on the West Coast out here in L.A., hadn't gotten a deal yet. They were still like doing fan mail and stuff. And oh, really? A, a buddy of ours over there, Kelvin, Kelp Hellraiser, was big on the glam rock scene in London, told us about this band Poison out in L.A. that are going to be huge. And Guns N' Roses wasn't even a thing yet. You know? No, they, they came later, um, right. But like at a time where like genres were sort of melting together, there was glam rock, there was this sort of goth thing and punk rock all intermingled with each other. And it was beautiful. You know, I had like punk friends. We had, you know, makeup and wild hair friends. And then you had like, you know, just rocker friends like that Hanoi rock cowboy kind of looking thing, you know, yep, yep, like yep. everything was all in this sort of same melting pot. And then you'd be listening to music in the clubs and they'd be playing Prince and Madonna with the cure and Frankie goes to Hollywood mixed with, you know, Bauhaus and fucking Ziggy Stardust and stuff. And, and uh, Mark Boland and T-Rex, like there was like this real sort of like, I don't know, soup of music it, it, that they would play. It's healthy. Yeah. yeah. And like, you know, you know, as time would go, everything became more and more subgenre and specialty. And like, I hate specialty. It's like, I think what you're, you started out talking about like what I do and how I'm hard to classify because right. like I grew up with AM radio and you had like R and B and you had pop and then you had a hocus pocus by the band focus, which is like a total rock and roll heavy metal instrumental. And then, You'd hear Deep Purple followed by, you know, Neil Sedaka, you know? You know, I never thought of that. AM radio was, what a great incubator uh, AM radio was. Because I grew up on, you know, WABC, right? That's where we would hear most of Yeah, yeah. Harry Harrison. Yeah, that's right. And and you would get, you know, we would drive to Florida and we would get uh, WABC sometimes down to the Carolinas. Like New York yeah. ABC would go really far back then, I remember. But yeah, yeah. you're right. You get Neil Sedaka, um, whose yeah. aunt once bought me a Hanukkah present <laughs> in Florida. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's an interesting one. Um, but um, yeah, and then you'd get, you'd get. Uh, I guess even back then, you'd, you'd start to get the Eagles. You'd get, yeah, you had the singer-songwriters, the Jim Croce's. Uh, was that the sale of say brandy? You're a fine girl. That's, that's on my that's on my playlist as we speak. You and then you'd hear mood for a day, not mood for a day. Heart of the sunrise, not heart of the sunrise. What's the big uh, song off of Fragile that plays what, the like, harmonics? Uh, ra- roundabout. 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 Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'd hear roundabout on AM radio. Yeah, back then. you know, and like Steve, an eight Steve minute Miller song. Bands. Yep, yep. I yep. love the Steve Miller band. I, I remember, you know. 
like you're talking about like really young and like the inspiration. Where did you get your inspiration? I remember yeah. I had the sheet music for Fly Like an Eagle and there was a picture of Steve Miller on the, the cover of it playing a Stratocaster. And right. I thought, oh, it's the guy with the guitar because I, I hadn't moved over to guitar yet. But somebody told me, Joe, you look like Steve Miller. And dude, the stars went off in my eyes, man. I was like, <laughs> yeah, I look like a rock star, man. You know? <laughs> so what was I like? you know, 10 years old or something, but the seed was planted. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what I do these days, I, I have Apple music and I'll just yeah. say, I don't want to say it too loud because it'll happen, but I'll say, Hey, S I R I play. Right. Yeah. And um, because my phone's right next to me and that would screw up and Scott would get mad at me because I'd screw up our yeah. audio, but, um, but I'll do a Steve Miller channel and Holy crap. When you, when you move even outside of his popular stuff, yeah, he's phenomenal. Like I, I've sort of rediscovered yeah. because I own two vinyl albums of his, the Fly Like an Eagle and whatever else I own. Um, yeah. But you know, stuff that I had never heard of growing up. He's just great guitar player, great songwriter, great singer, or a good singer, I guess. Good singer. Yeah, yeah. You know, good, like more than good. Own, he had his own thing. You know, he wasn't yeah. like uh, you know virtuoso, but he like produced like the records were produced in a way where. You know, it kind of had, you know, I think he had a level of artistry, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. maybe looking back, they might call it pop rock or something, but yeah. to us it's just, you know, or it's classic rock now, but it was like, you know, it's cool shit, you know, like he, it was thought about, it was thought out and yeah. uh, the, the guitar sounds and the layering and the vocals and this, you know, he would use synthesizer. And, yeah. He made really intelligent use of synthesizers because he made his songs very pop friendly. Yeah. He, even though there's real rock and roll guitar underneath, I'm actually yeah. hearing some of the intros in my head right now to some of his songs. You know, because in between every song, you'd have this weird synth kind of uh, either yeah, yeah, you know, prelude or, you know, something. Yeah. And it wasn't like leaning into like, uh, I don't know, like prog rock or something. No, nowhere like, near it. Nowhere near it. It, it right. was just a sound. It was like using a violin or a flute or something. Like, you know, uh, what do we call it? An embellishment. You know, like, what's that song? In the Winter Time. Remember that song? In yeah. In the Winter Time. And he, and he had yeah. all these ethereal kind of yeah, uh, yeah. noises going on. But yeah. it, I know we're supposed to be talking about guitars, but while we're on keyboards, yeah. You know, like, like, my favorite like keyboard uh, stuff was Greg Hawks from The Cars, I thought was an innovator, as well yeah. as Richard Wright from Pink Floyd. Those two guys were like the innovators in my book as far as piano. And what's and interesting is names, two names that people don't know, right? Yeah. With That's pretty cool. Excellent guitar bands, too, you know? Like, yeah. Elliot Easton from The Cars is like one of my five, top five guitar heroes. David Gilmore, before him, Sid Barrett, incredible songwriter and artist, you know? First two Pink Floyd albums are my favorite, you know? Everybody knows Dark Side, too, and oh my The God. Wall or whatever. And, and everyone you just mentioned, I think yeah. is playing for the song and not for themselves. Yeah. You know, Definitely. I mean, there are great guitar players who play for themselves. I mean, look, we, you know, we worship Eddie here on this show, but you know, Eddie yeah. didn't always play just for the song. Eddie played a little, you know, if we're going to call it for what it is, he also played for Eddie. He liked to show off a little bit. And that's sure, yeah. partly why he's one of our heroes because we all aspire, you know, to that. Yeah. Um, but like in the cars, none of those leads are playing for anything other than the song. Yeah, it's like a little mini pocket song within the song, you know. Like yeah. The solo starts and it takes you on a journey and it wraps you up at the end and leaves you off 
sailing into the chorus or whatever comes next and clean and tidy yeah 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 it's just like a little song within the song and then his choice of guitar like the tones he would use the effects that he would use everything was just perfect for the music and so like modern at the same time but at the same time so classic you know when you think about like my best friend's girl i think the first two car songs i heard was my best friend's girl and um you know from the first album uh but like best friend's girl was like a rockabilly song you know and like yeah that's awesome man like, yeah here, and, here's like the biggest new wave band in the world and they're playing like rock and roll you're right and, it, and scotch chiming in we have we could look at our screen over there neil Giraldo. um yeah it, it, same exact thing he 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 is i mean he could do as good a solo as anyone anywhere um sure, yeah. but he had you like know. a ferocity like he, he yeah. had like a real passion in his playing yeah you know, and those Pat Benatar records are just like smoking solos, man. We we did. I had to play rhythm because I can't do anything. We played Heartbreaker in one of my bands. Yeah. And hit me with your best shot. But uh, he yeah. but his but he played for the song, you know. Yeah. And, and God knows he's someone you you could hear even in that that he could do, you know, he could do this sort of show offy stuff, but he would play for the song. And, yeah. and you know, you know who else I, I saw in your bio, you're an Elvis Costello guy. Oh yeah, uh, the Armed Forces album was where I really got into him when that came out. You know, I remember, yeah. you know, back in those days, like this is high school, and like, you know, my family were kind of working class. You know, we right. didn't really have a lot of money, and I didn't get allowance like most kids did and stuff. So like, I would get money for lunch. I would get like thirty-five cents a day for lunch money. You know? Right, right, right. And this is in nineteen seventy-eight or seventy-nine. Right. And I would save my lunch money. I wouldn't eat lunch, and I would save up enough money to buy an album every like three weeks or whatever it was. And uh, I wouldn't just buy an album for a song. I, I would have to know there were more than one good song. Yeah. So yeah. Armed Forces came out. There was Oliver's Army. Accidents Will Happen. And I heard um, uh, Green Shirt was on that album. I started, I heard like four songs from that record. And I thought, all right, it's time to buy this album. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like that was my introduction to um, Elvis Costello and the attractions. It's not just Elvis Costello; it was his band too. Yeah, they, the yeah. bass playing is the best oh my god, the bass playing since Paul McCartney. You know? Yeah, and, and 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 the drums with it, like their rhythm yeah. section, and his collaboration with Nick Lowe. You know, like he knew which songs to take and what to do with them when Nick Lowe would write a good song. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you that know? whole album it was great, and then from there, kind of going backwards, and uh, the second album had like pump it up. Yep. And I think radio radio was on that too. Yeah. Uh, uh, I kind of went back backwards to that and you could hear like the difference in the production by the time he got to the armed forces album, it was like really, really produced. And yeah. like the overall, like they, they must've had a better budget or the production was upped. Yeah. It, it, the, the, yeah. His later, just high end, you know, the musicianship, yeah. the sound quality, I think he, yeah. he he found what his voice needed to be, you know, because what what a unique, interesting, controlled, emotive voice, you know, that, that yeah. he has had and has, and yeah. you know, and and, and uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna thrust another uh, segue upon us. Um, sure. So we're talking about production, talking about albums, and and. All of that you have an album coming out called Public Works, so I want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, my album Public Works uh, is out now. Um, 
what is it, 12 songs, I think. <laughs> um, but it's basically about the influences of growing up in the Northeast, sort of working class life in the Northeast. There's some themes that run through it, a couple topics in there. Um, you know, self-produced. I did it myself. I began kind of during the pandemic when there was no band stuff happening. Right, and right. I, was, I released a few singles at that time, which ended up becoming part of this album. And I just kept going until I had a complete album. And I thought, what am I going to call it? And I, I always like, uh, you know, having the name Joe Normal, I think just sort of signifies sort of like the every person. And yeah. I like, you, you know, I used to go by Hutchworks because my last name is Hutchinson. Okay. And the idea of music as a body of work. And I like public works because the appeal that it's like for everybody, I'm hoping that there's some topics that most people relate to, like summer jobs and, um, you know, working life and uh, the struggle for survival and stuff. And when I say survival, I just mean, you know, just to make ends meet, you know. No, I know. And by the way, if anyone's watching right now, pause your screen and we have the QWERTY or the QR code. Uh, it'll take you right to everything that Joe Normal has right there. Uh, Scott's put it on the screen. So if you pause the show right now, you just take out your iPhone or if you have a Samsung or one of those, I'm sure it'll work too. And and, and that'll take you to uh, the album and I'm sure many other things. But, yep, look at that. Scott, Scott said somebody scanned the QR code, so that's fabulous. Oh, thank you. Appreciate yeah. that. No, it's good stuff. It's very good stuff. And yeah, I have you, it, like, on my website. You know, people still buy CDs. You know, at shows, people buy CDs. And I know people think, oh, nobody listens to CDs. Well, people don't buy them to listen to them. They buy them because it's like a souvenir. Yeah. They, they listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever. And it's it's available on all the streaming things. But if you'd like you know, like a tangible thing you can hold. Yeah. You know, I have them on my website or, or whatever. So. Yeah, I think I think that's important. You know, we we culturally have lost so, so much in terms of the tactile, you know. Yeah. I mean, everything yeah. everything resides in here. And, uh, yeah. you know, in my personal and professional life, I'll get journals and I'll make yeah. notes. And I like, you know, the feel and there's something different about it. And if they're listening on Spotify, yeah, they could pull up your picture, you know, and look at you. But there's something about the CD, which is, you know, it is the stepchild of the vinyl album, you know. Right. But they yeah. could hold that and look at you and maybe read some notes. And there's something so much better about that uh, yeah. than having it purely digitized. Yeah. So, so that's exciting stuff. So. So uh, we have all the information. Normally, I would say it, but we've got your website, joenormalusa.com, at right. the bottom yeah. of the screen. And now, let me ask you this, because we're actually coming up, believe it or not, we're coming up on the full hour already. Wow. Uh, Man, it, that went fast. It has <laughs> never failed in four years. Every guest we've had, including, by the way, we, we had uh, uh, an L.A. producer on who thought he knew, he's a dear friend of mine, thought he knew everything. He he assumed it was about 10 or 15 minutes and I think we went about 65 and it just, it flew because it's fun to chat. Wow. Um, what do you have coming up? What, what are you looking forward to for the uh, remainder of this year? Uh, I'm working on my next album. You know, I'm kind of set myself a goal to do an album a year and like a holiday song a year. Oh, I <laughs> like that. So in 10 years, I'll have like an entire Christmas album. It's kind of what I'm hoping. For. That's a great idea. Uh, but um, so like, that's kind of like my musical ambition, like recording wise, but I do uh, 
want to get back out there. I kind of want to have a band go uh, situation. Uh, in the meantime, I'm doing solo acoustic shows. I've got three private events I'm doing this week. Um, I want to get out to that Asbury scene and play there. But if I do, I'd like to do it as a band. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of like in the works. And then uh, the main thing that I am gearing up for is I'm going to do uh, a rail tour this uh, summer. Towards the end of the summer, I'm going to do an Amtrak tour. I've always wanted to go tour on the train. Oh, wow. Uh, part of my thing is uh, I've got a little visual impairment, so I don't drive anymore. And okay. solving that problem with touring has like, been an issue for me. And I thought, well, what if I could take the train? You know, I've always wanted yeah. to do that, like the Beatles on Hard Day's Night. <laughs> that's, and, that's a great uh, idea. I actually just saw last night that uh, Neil Young has something he's doing. It said the coast tour and there was a train on his poster. I thought, oh shit, I think he got the same idea that I did. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. But uh, Amtrak has uh, Coast Starlight and it goes all the way from San Diego all the way on up to Seattle. And you can choose 10 destinations uh, on the way over a month. And I'm going to put that together. And my son Drake is a big uh, train fan and Drake's 21. Drake has autism. Okay. And that's kind of a thing for our family. It's a big thing in our family and we do all kinds of train activities together. And I thought, what if Drake and I could go on tour together and yeah. just have a father and son adventure and, you know, I just, you know, play a few shows here or there. Then we like, you know, kind of geek out on all the Amtrak stuff and, you know, uh, you know, make some videos of it to uh, remember it by. So that's kind of what I'm gearing up for the summer. And uh, if anybody wants to kind of donate to a little film that we want to make of the tour of the train, um, you can go to my website. There'll be a little PayPal thing there or on oh, my YouTube. There's a, a donation link there in any of the videos. Just go to all my videos. You'll see a donation link. There. Well, that's perfect. We got, we got the QR code on the screen. Same thing right now. Pause your, uh, uh, pause our show a little bit and you could uh, put your phone up to it. That'll take you right there. Yeah. Well, that's exciting any, stuff. Any like merch that you buy, any albums that you pick up or whatever, all that money is going into support whatever tour that we do with this uh, rail thing that I'm gearing up for. So. Well, that's I'll exciting stuff. I'll give you dates for that. I'll let you oh. know. Well, that, and if you ever, not if you ever, but when you come to Jersey, uh, look Scott yeah. and I up. Scott lives right near Asbury, and I live close enough to Asbury to easily make the 45-minute ride up. So we'd sure, love to yeah. we'd love to uh, hang out with you and uh, watch we, you guys we play. We have to go. Uh, we have to go get one of these. Everybody, don't forget the the mug, okay? <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. Here, here you go. I'll give you. Here's our merch. Yeah. We have all sorts of merch. There. I'm really bad at that. Noise Network. <laughs> we have lots of merch. Um, but thank you buy, so buy much. A, yeah. Buy us a beer. Buy us a coffee today if you're watching. That's right. That's right. You have, you have a, like a link or something where people can do that to support the channel, right? There we go. Scott's putting it up right now. Buy us a drink. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, this has been great. I, I, you know, I knew it because we were chatting maybe ten or fifteen minutes, not even ten, five or ten minutes before we started taping, and yeah. I knew that I knew this show would just fly right by. Um, oh, that's cool. So we we, we do truly appreciate your uh, coming by and doing the show with us. Thank you. Just uh, real quick, I just want to say, yeah, you know, I, I kind of been looking at some of the shows to get a feel for what you do, you know, and. Uh, you had Todd Yasui on, yep. who I know uh, because I was in a band with my buddy Anthony Slow Motorcade. 
And Todd came down and actually auditioned as a singer. <laughs> oh my God, that's great. Then, I, I know that, but not you. I knew he auditioned <laughs> as a singer. Yeah, like I was helping Anthony out too, you know, and uh, he came down to kind of help out. But uh, And then uh, Dan Neary was on one of your shows and his dad, Ricky Neary, is from Elizabeth. And Ricky was a bass player when I was growing up that we used to look up to in our neighborhood. And uh, he had made these like light boxes. And this is like in the 70s. And I guess he worked like with electricity or something, made these light boxes. And one day they were out on the curb and he was throwing them out. I don't know if he just like quit playing bass in a band or whatever. And I saw him and I asked him, hey, Ricky, are you throwing these out? Can we have these for our band? And he was like, sure, Joe. Yeah, you can have oh, it. That's and, great. You know, and then I see Dan on your show and he's like a blazing, blistering guitar player. now he too. Is. And, and that's his son. And it's just kind of like, you know, all the puzzle pieces are starting to fit together. You know, good old New Jersey. <laughs> oh, that is great. Those, those are some great connections. <laughs> really great. Yeah. And by the way, Todd, the, the song you were vibing to, Todd's yeah. on drums on that song. Oh, I didn't know that. That's so wild. Yeah, because we were in a band together in college. I so didn't realize that. Okay. John Doe and the Generics featuring Michael Bernstein was our band. So that yeah. we, bring, we bring it full circle. <laughs> That's so wild. How cool is yeah. that? Oh, that is great. That is a wonderful small world thing. Why do I have a feeling this will be a real? <laughs> yeah. Scott's <laughs> nothing. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you brought those things up. That's fantastic. You have put a big smile on my face. Uh, cool. So... Joe, thank you so much for joining us. It's It's been a ton of fun. Yeah, thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate it. And thank you, Scott, too. Oh, absolutely. So everyone at Guitar Tales, thank you for joining us again. Check out Joe Normal's page. Um, subscribe to anything he does, please, on his YouTube page, on any other pages he has. And while you're at it, hop to our page, subscribe. This way you can find out about all the cool shows we have coming up. And I want to thank again my friend of 40-plus years, Scott Guitarmacist Engel, who is our publicist, our booker, our producer, and a million other things. He is absolutely wonderful. So thank you so much. Have a good night, everyone. Take care. Take care.